Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, the Hotel Cafe, uh, Tongue and Groove, and uh, Pan America. Thank you for coming out. Um, thanks for making the effort to show up. Um, Tongue and Groove has been hosting uh, Pan America for, I think, six or seven years, and I'm, I'm very uh, pleased and honored to do that. If you haven't been to this club before, the Hotel Cafe is a live music club. There's music seven days a week. When we're, we're done, there's a few uh, bands playing after us in the, in the other rooms, so you might want to linger. I um, want to thank the club for letting us do this, Marco and Max uh, and the, the staff. Uh, Dan at the door, Stacy the sound, uh, Brian and Candace at the bar, Gia, production person, give them all a hand please. Um, oh God, very clumsy. Um, so thanks again for showing up. Um, if, if you uh, are not on the email list, we'll put out some um, uh, notepads you'll see for, for pen and for tongue and groove. Please uh, give us your email address so we can let you know about future events to come. Uh, because this is a live music club, we always like to include a musical guest. And tonight, the musical guest is a band called Elephants with Guns. So I'll get out of the way and please welcome Elephants with Guns. downtown Los Angeles. We're going to start this literary event with playing a song uh, that's in an instrumental. So write your own lyrics. Close your eyes. <laughs> write your own lyrics. Yeah. But thank you. This is a great event. Um, we're really happy to be here. And this song's called When Pluto Was a Planet. Life was better when Pluto was a planet.
Is this on this side or this side? Make a difference? All right. Well, that was great. So, uh, they'll be back for a couple more songs. Um, and now, I'd like to introduce the uh, Pen America Los Angeles Program Coordinator, Natalie Green. to Pen America and Tongue and Groove presenting the 2018 Emerging Voices for their second public reading. <laughs> Woo. And for those of you that don't know, Pen America stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect open expression in the United States and worldwide. Um, for those of you that also don't know this, Pen America is a membership organization. And it is because of our members and donors that we are able to offer the Emerging Voices Fellowship, which is now celebrating its 22nd year. <laughs> Emerging Voices is a literary mentorship that aims to provide new writers who are isolated from the literary establishment with the tools they need to launch a professional writing career. Let's give a huge cheer for program manager extraordinaire Amanda Fletcher, who couldn't be here tonight, but is a tireless EV manager of all things. This year's mentors are Tanana Reeve-Dew, Michael Jaime Becerra, Douglas Manuel, Angela Morales, and Lilian Rivera. Michael and Angela, wave your hands and give them a huge round of applause for all of their work. And now, let's get started. Francisco Yerby is a writer from Long Beach, California. He earned a bachelor's degree in history and English from UCLA. His fiction has been published in Crab Orchard Review, Zona de Carga, Loading Zone, Verdad Magazine, and Westwind. Francisco works for a nonprofit organization where he mentors at-risk youth and is currently working on a collection of short stories. Here's Frankie. Can you all guys hear me? Every good, good? Perfect. Thank, uh, Lou, thank you for coming out here. A uh, little nervous, but I, I am the quiet one of the group, so bear with me. <laughs> this is called uh, Lapices de Color. Griselda is on top of her parents' bed, and she's careful not to move around too much because she doesn't want to make her mother mad again. The two pillows at the head of the bed form one perfect lump under the thick, fussy blanket that has a lion perched on a rocky mound woven into the fabric. The lion is a deep burnt sienna and its surroundings are white. The reverse is the negative of the image. Griselda is wearing her pink coverall pajamas with white polka dots and her mind is on her coloring book. She doesn't care if the bright Crayola colors go outside the lines of Papa Smurf because she's five and it doesn't have to be perfect. When her mother walks in, Griselda stands Wrinkle and wrinkles in the bed form under her feet. She lifts the coloring book and says, Mira, mommy. Her mother doesn't say anything. She has just gotten out of the shower, and the only thing she has on is a forest green towel wrapped around her chest. Alexa looks naked to Griselda because her face is unadorned 
without any makeup. And Griselda's not used to seeing Alexa like this. Her, mother's, her mother looks plain and unimpressive. Her face is pale. Little red marks are visible around the chin and on the forehead. Under the eyes, her skin looks slightly inflated. But this will not be how Griselda remembers, remembers her. Many years later, no matter how much she tries and would like to, Griselda's never able to picture her mother's face without any cosmetics. Still holding up the coloring book, Griselda says, Mira, mami, mira. Bonito, Alexa says, pulling the corner of the blanket to make it taut and reduce the number of creases. Then Alexa sits in front of her vanity. Griselda notices that the vanity is made out of white, thin metal tubes, and she looks at the glass shelf, which has ornate bottles, tiny jars, colorful packets, brushes, pencils, and gilded containers. Griselda wants to play with those shiny objects, especially the box that has a miniature hand crank at its base and a ballerina frozen in the middle of her dance. But every time she tries to make the ballerina dance, her mother smacks her hand away and tells her, eso no es un juguete. Griselda doesn't touch that ballerina or anything else on that shelf anymore. Having recently learned to count the numbers one to 10 in English from watching the count on Sesame Street, Griselda counts out loud the little glass jars that her mother uses to paint her fingernails. Eight, Griselda says. In Espanol, Alexa instructs. For the first time, Griselda realizes that her mother doesn't understand. So she counts the red bottles again, this time in Spanish. And she realizes something else. Red has many different shades. Some are dark, some are lighter in color. Looking down, Griselda holds the, the only red crayon that comes in her Crayola set. It's red violet, and to her, it looks dull and not as shiny. With her back to her daughter, Alexa grabs a comb and begins to brush her damp hair. She blow dries it and pulls it tight until it is smooth against her head and wraps it in a bun. Using a yellow colored oil that to Griselda smells like freshly cut lemon, Alexa dabs her hair until it glistens and sheens. Griselda scrunches her nose. She is reminded of the pain she feels whenever her mother uses elastic hair ties with twin clear beads to bunch her hair into a ponytail. Alexa always pulls hard, leaving no loose hairs, and Griselda yelps and cries, but that only makes Alexa yank harder. Griselda looks at Papa Smurf. She hasn't decided what color his hat should be. No te muevas, Alexa instructs, and Griselda sits still. In the center of the vanity, Alexa's face is reflected in the mirror which swivels and would tour all the way around if it weren't for the wall behind it. But Alexa's not concerned with that mirror. Instead, she grabs a pocket-sized mirror that has an image of two lovers in a deep and ardent embrace on its cover. In the future, on a date with a man much older than her, Griselda will see the actual Renaissance painting at the Getty. She will read the inscription next to it, Glossop Prize, painting in 1718, 1719. In its entirety, there's a third person in the image that is not shown on the cover of her mother's pocket mirror. Besides the lovers, there's a man who will remind Griselda of her own father, Juan. The second man is off to the side, playing a guitar, and it's clear that his serenades mean nothing to the young woman whose affections he's trying to gain. With the radio turned on into the local Spanish station, the mother begins to sing, but she never sings along to the whole song only to certain lines about love and romance. Even as her lips move, Alexa's face stays still, for her right hand is in constant motion. She pats her face, and brisk she pats her face with brisk stabs 
and rubs her cheeks and forehead with the tips of her fingers. Even the tool she uses produces small, delicate sounds. There are the dings and clinks of brushes hitting glass and sheet metal, and there are the clacks of plastic lids opening and closing. For the circles under the eyes, especially after hard nights, this is the best lotion, Alexa says in Spanish, and massages her eyelids with a soft touch. Making her cheeks red, she tells her daughter, how one applies the rouge on the cheeks depends on the shape of the face. The seriousness, the seriousness in the way her mother speaks makes Griselda listen, even though she doesn't really understand what her mother is saying. Alexa then grabs something that looks like a thick crayon and rubs the blunted purple tip on her eyes. She flattens out the purple with a brush while telling Griselda that a mistake a lot of women make when applying eyeshadow is if they have a little green in their eyes, they think that they should use green eyeshadow. But what they actually need is a color that contrasts the green to make it pop. Griselda uses her Crayola crayon to give Papa Smurf violet color eyes. She tries to keep her crayon within the lines, but she's only partly successful. So she turns the, to a clean page and starts all over. Alexa begins darkening her thin eyebrows with a pencil and uses another pencil that is as sharp as a needle to form a perfect outline around the lips. When Alexa turns and smiles, the freshly applied glimmering red lipstick amazes Griselda. Alexa asks her daughter what she thinks, and Griselda says that her mother is as pretty as a flower. The remark reminds Alexa to spray a little perfume. Tiny droplets float through the air and land on Alexa's skin. She sprays a little more on Griselda, who has moved closer to her mother. Griselda is overwhel overwhelmed by the floral soapy aroma and she crinkles up her nose as if she's going to sneeze. Eres un viejito, Alexa smiles. She says this to her every time Griselda puckers her lips and crumples up her nose. Griselda tells her mother that she's not an old man, but a princess. Alexa's quick to remind her daughter that she herself is the only princess in this room. Griselda disagrees. Yo soy una princesa y tú eres la reina, and she jumps off the edge of the bed. Alexa catches her. Touching her mother's so soft skin, smelling her, and seeing how beautiful Alexa looks so close to her, and with her eyes glowing from the natural light, Griselda feels a strong desire to kiss her mother on the lips and all over. But when she does, her mother tosses her on the bed. Griselda lands on top of the coloring book. Her mother checks herself in the mirror and tells Griselda to look at what she has done. Griselda has smeared her mother's makeup and the unevenness of the lipstick makes Alexa's mouth look deformed, and Griselda becomes afraid that she has forever ruined her mother's face. Thank you, thank you. one. Let's give him another round of applause. So kind of throughout the night, I'm going to just tell you a little bit more about Emerging Voices for those that are newer to the program. Over seven months, the EVs take part in master classes, UCLA writers extension courses, private author evenings. The incredible Dana Johnson is here. They just had one with her. And a voice class with the masterful Dave Thomas, that helps them prepare for three public readings like this one. They also complete 25 hours of volunteer service and are awarded a $1,000 stipend, 
thanks to Pasadena Literary Alliance, that stipend was doubled for 2018. Clap and then cross your fingers for 2019. <laughs> Next up, we have the dapper Ron L. Zhao. He is a lifelong resident of the Watts and Compton areas of Los Angeles. Employed for 38 years with Los Angeles County, Ron has a unique perspective on local urban communities that, in turn, inform many of his stories. He holds two master's degrees from California State University Long Beach in Criminal Justice and Emergency Services Administration. Ron is working on a collection of short stories as well. Thanks everyone for coming out. If you're like me, you may still be in recovery from the post 2016 election. <laughs> I have a solution for you. It's called the Affixa Anti Antidepressant Solution. <laughs> Two years before ink dried on his contract with Farmer Brothers Pharmaceuticals, Angus Muhammad poked his matted dreadlocks out from his tent and shielded his eyes when midsummer sun glinted off shards of glass and empty food cans. He scratched his scabies in his armpits and body lights on his groin. Red and white lights flashed while one paramedic tinkered with x-ray and heart monitor settings inside rear doors of the expandable fire department smart pod, a mobile emergency room. Two rescue workers bent at their waist, one crouched, and two others kneeled on dirt in amber trousers, pumped vigorously before their sudden stop. Robert, a camp newbie who had coughed and cried throughout the night, was dead. Angus slapped his tent flap, bit his lip. His world seemed to slow. In skyscraper shadows, he scanned camp shanties on embanked swaths of tussock along L.A. River. Had someone, anyone cared, maybe Robert would have lived. Angus hummed as he always had when helpless. A black air taxi, propeller pods upward, swirled dust clouds onto untidy lights below when it slowed, landed. Angus braced himself for another LAPD rousting. Its vertical electric motors attached perpendicular to wingtips folded and disappeared into its carbon fi fiber body. Steel gray scissor doors rotated. Out buzzed a silvery metallic cockroach-shaped aerial drone. Next, a pair of tan alligator cowboy boots crunched denuded sandy soil. It's him, said the six-legged walnut-sized drone in chirpy androgynous lip smacks. The jolly pink Face Boots guy stretched his hand and pushed Angus' his business card. I'm Reinhard, former brother CEO, he said. Our DNA samples trace the X factor to you, your saliva, hair roots, even your arrest record, all match. We'll pay you well for it, he swiped away sweat. Angus's thought fro thoughts froze. He considered Reinhard's expensive suit, platinum Rolex watch. Reinhardt wasn't police, but was clearly among the 1% controlling them. Pay me for what? Reinhardt squeezed on hand sanitizer. Your feces, Mr. Muhammad. Oh, snap, my shit? <laughs> <laughs> he, 
He's seen the old punk videos where celebrities were made victims of pranks. Does this crusty white guy really think he could game Angus Mohammed, who resisted post-election funk that millions fell into a generation before, had held fast during the 2033 recession when he lost his job, his home, his wife, unfazed by warm, cunning, devilish depression? He'd play along. Bam, how much? I'm sure my people and your people can negotiate something reasonably beneficial. Reinhardt turned redder and seemed to hold his breath, but Angus was used to the stench of campsite piss and shit. Maybe a price based on volume or weight, Reinhardt said. Angus's hungry belly flooded when Reinhardt advanced him 30 Bitcoin vouchers. He never would have believed that salvation happened when homeless people lace food with each other's shit and their dispositions improved. <laughs> that was then. Now, Angus rocked on a gold-plated toilet seat that warmed his butt and drifted in and out of a virtual magazine about vegan diets. <laughs> Farmer Brothers owned the rights to his shit because he signed a non-disclosure agreement when they offered it to him. He hummed. It's expensive, it's expansive. 40th floor office felt like a jail despite its accoutrements, such as piped-in white noise, its cherry wood top desk. He gazed from his semi-private toilet in bidet enclave to rooftop skyports below him, westward to the L.A. River, and to the south, the vehement Compton Courthouse dominating that city skyline, all from a collaborative workspace occupied by him and nosy personal assistant Alex 25, the drone. Alex whizzed low to his left and said, Did you sleep well last night, Angus? Alex flew without human intervention and often rubbed his two front feet together like it had a tick. It could morph into holographic images like Mr. Olympia, Miss Universe, or, as Alex considered itself, someone non-binary with a range of facial options. Angus's skin tingled. I noticed last night that your REM sleep was that of an 80-year-old. Angus was only 49. My electro-oculography monitor detected that, as usual, you became sexually aroused. <laughs> but the erection lasted for a considerably shorter time span. What did you dream about? Is there any way that I can assist you? <laughs> Fucking freak. <laughs> Last time, Alex had morphed into a vintage naked holly berry that Angus used to pleasure himself even though he daydreamed about Sonora Hollingsworth, a school psychologist he'd met. Was it good, my nigga? Alex had said at the time. Jaw muscles tight, Angus had said, I ain't your nigga, motherfucker. Hmm, the N-word had been programmed into artificial intelligence, even though people received help from the poop of a black man. Angus scrolled to an advertisement for antidepressants and the picture of a shirtless, shoulder-length, blonde, blue-eyed white man. His scruffy beard reminded Angus, Angus of old Jesus Christ pictures he'd once seen in Baptist churches. Farmer Brothers believed it pro more profitable to claim that a fixer came from the ass of a white guy surrounded by cloudy radiance. Bullshit! Whoosh! Angus flushed the toilet. His business was sucked down to be processed into a fixer the most popular and powerful antidepressant ever. I'll stop there, thank you. <laughs>
on for talking about shit. <laughs> so very quickly, I want to thank our supporters. There is a lot, so hold your applause. The Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, the City of Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, New Balloon and Catapult Ovation Foundation, the Rosenthal, Rosenthal Family Foundation, and Jamie and David Wolf for making this 2018 fellowship year possible. Thank you. And next up, we have the powerhouse of Angela Sanchez. She is a Los Angeles native and UCLA alumna, working at the nexus of higher education, policy, and the nonprofit sector. Angela focuses on narratives that have been typically underrepresented in children's literature. She has written and self-published a children's book, Scruffy and the Egg, which you can now buy, that's a plug I'm adding, about single parenthood and homelessness. She is currently working on her first YA novel. Here's Angela. Vertically challenged. <laughs> A personal essay. I stared dumbly at the barren room. Our dining table was dismantled. Its accompanying chairs lined up against walls devoid of family pictures and once beloved bookcases. This year, there would be no handmade stuffing for Thanksgiving and no friends to have over. Every instinct I possessed screamed this wasn't right. How could they still tell me I wasn't dreaming? The news said so. The housing bubble collapsed. Development and architecture fields were the first areas hit. Work for my dad soon evaporated. First, odd jobs. Then, borrowing. Then, budgeting. Then, the pink notices on our door appeared. Pay or quit. Another week in, we knew we didn't have money for upcoming attorney fees. We got packing. To where? I didn't know. We had no other home. My dad barked marching orders around a cigarette and loaded a record packed case into my hands. My dad loved his music. I had the bragging rights of growing up in a giant iPod with primordial CDs read records, but not anymore. Just last week, Dad's Victrola, his favorite fixture, had been given away with some accompanying Blue Jay records. He wasn't ready to part with the 45s or LPs yet. So, completely on autopilot, I trotted after him out of the apartment and down to the garage to load up more boxes. How could he be so casual about it, I wondered. Doesn't this phase him? I tried to put the situation on the fringes of my mind. We weren't getting evicted. Not this close to the holiday season. Packing boxes? Who, me? Nah, 
These were early Christmas gifts, or donations. Dad had just gotten a large public storage unit to hold them, some of them. The books on magic and the records and bits of his collection that he didn't want to see thrown away, like junk. Even when I was packing all my possessions into box after box, it didn't feel like it was happening to us or happening to me. It was a surreal experience, like I was storing away all these belongings for some pharaoh's afterlife or for someone who had passed away. I was packing for anyone other than myself, some other dying girl. Okay, I think that's all old Betsy can handle in her trunk, my dad announced as he locked up the car and we marched back upstairs. Take a breather, he said. It was one o'clock in the afternoon, and finally the adrenaline rush of the past 24 hours was draining. I fell asleep on my dad's bed, like I used to when I was three, spittle and snot finding undignified ways out of my face. I won't forget that whole hectic month leading up to our eviction. I would walk home from school almost every day, and I tried to memorize every step every crack in the concrete, the little dog paw prints by the bridge pavement, the arm of the L.A. River I crossed, the hideous Tonka toy construct next to my friend's apartment, even the short-lived dandelion. I had to remember it all, all six corners of my room, each hue in the old gnarled tree and blue, blue sky my window looked out to, the hills and townhouses. When this was finished, memories would be all I could claim of home. Because really, you end up missing the littlest things. I'd never get to walk home with my friends again after school. I'm not sure how much longer I'll be going to the same school. I'll never get the same view from my window. I had to trash my glow-in-the-dark stars and handmade mobiles. I remember pacing the short 15 feet from the television to the end of the dining area, declaring that so long as this was my home, I would not forget any sensation of it. These were small things, but they were mine. At least until the afternoon on our last day. At one o'clock, my adrenaline gave out after a whole morning of worrying and just a few hours sleep. So. I lay down on the bed to close my eyes for a bit. The slamming of a fist on the door made my eyes snap open wide, and I found a damp spot of drool. The clock read 1.15. The pounding sounded louder. My father opened the door to two police officers. What are you still doing here? The first cop asked. I wanted to say we live here, but according to the paper with the bright red print in his hand, we didn't. Sir, you have to leave, the other officer said as politely as possible. Sure, just a sec, Dad said, running back to the bedroom to grab a duffel bag. Now, the policeman insisted, squeezing past me. Excuse me, ma'am, he said. Ma'am? I wanted to echo incredulously. Ma'am? 
I'm only 16. I'm not even legal yet. I can't even vote to change the stupid policy that says I have to leave the only home I've ever known. Ma'am? In less than a minute, we didn't belong anywhere. Our locks changed right there. We were officially homeless. But in the ancient rickety Bonneville, my dad looked over at me with a smirk. Feels good to be free, doesn't it, kids? At first, it gaped at him. We were just evicted. Did he miss the memo? And he was talking about freedom when we didn't have much choice in getting to go or stay. But my dad added, in these situations, you can laugh or you can cry. Well, it feels pretty good to laugh. We'll just keep on moving to Natalie Mon, who is an educator who holds a Master of Arts in Humanities from San Francisco State University. Her writing has appeared in Angel City Review, The Rattling Wall, and the anthology Only Light Can Do That. Natalie is currently working on a memoir based on her experiences growing up in a multi-ethnic family in the San Fernando Valley. Here's Natalie. of my memoir. The last time I saw him, I stretched face down on his driveway, bawling as the cold cement pressed against my forehead, wishing for the ground to quake, wishing Gaia would open her arms and sweep me in, wishing she would swallow me from darkness to another unknown. My world eclipsed when Glenn told me our friendship was over. As I gaze at Tara, my therapist, words spill out. He did nothing. He stood staring from his porch. I wanted him to hold me, tell me that he loves me. Tara's mid-like brown hair sweeps against her cream sweater. She wears colors connected to earth. I started seeing her my second year teaching high school students on the cusp of dropping out. As an empath, I enrobed in their emotions, yet I had no compassion for myself. After a childhood of being bullied for the color of my skin, after surviving an assault at the hands of a male relative two weeks prior to meeting Glenn, for over a year, Glenn and I spent all of our free time together I trusted kindness existed in the world. I trusted when he whispered that I was perfect for him, that even after I was his girl, we would remain friends. We broke up when I let him have space to heal from childhood trauma and his late wife's death. He thanked me for understanding 
I wanted to wound him in one sweeping move. Through years of pain, I learned to spot people's weaknesses. What is wrong with me, I asked Tara. I, could told, I told him I could date someone more successful, that he's an asshole who couldn't even get it up. My heart knew he was hiding something else. As a teacher working with middle school Latinx students, I spent the week Trump was elected facilita facilitating discussions. I listened to why three students supported the orange one without cutting down their false thinking. I gave Clinton supporters more room to articulate fear for their parents' safety, their safety. They hated walls. They wanted to be heard. As a woman embodying a brown body, I felt their fear, their voicelessness. As a brown woman, I cringed on November 8th when Glenn sitting next to me on my parents' couch. Rage still seethes from my wounds I never knew existed. As a white male, Glenn was disappointed in the election results. Since no target loomed over his head, he could never comprehend what my family went through during the 1979 hostage crisis. Neighbors across the street shot into our house because they thought we were Iranian. He didn't know how I felt having strangers grab at my crotch in clubs, even when I wore pants, or the shame I felt waiting in the emergency room with a busted eardrum after being beaten for two hours. Then to leave one's job because the only options are to heal or experience secondary trauma, teaching students, who needed more love than I could give. He knew my story's cadence, but couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand I suffer from PTSD. When I speak to Tara, my head hangs. It feels as if all the work we had done unwound. Through my mouth, thoughts unfold. He premeditated the breakup. I feel that in my gut, but maybe I'm wrong. Tara's voice calls me back in the room. What worries me is that you're questioning yourself, not whether or not he premeditated this. Why do you think I'm concerned? My head lifts. As a teacher, I trust the advice I give my students, but it still takes work for me to take my own. My eyes meet hers. Before I speak, because I'm intuitive, by questioning my intuition, I question myself. How can someone leave a relationship and then end the friendship without communication? Tara reminds me, he didn't have the capacity. He doesn't know anything else. At 12, his parents abandoned him to the foster care system. He thought his parents were dead. If his parents walked out on him in an instant, he could do the same with anyone, including me. Tara calls him a narcissist. Idealize, devalue, replace, discard.
Months later, I would dig through social media, finding timelines leading to a woman from a Tantra meetup. A woman he pointed out on a mutual Facebook friends page at the our relationship's beginning. He waited for that relationship to solidify before he got rid of me. Glenn told me he wanted to see my therapist with me. He wanted to know how I ended up in the emergency room before I met him. In my therapist's office, I felt that revealing my wounds would feel safe. As soon as we sat down, Glenn gave no time to settle. He blurted. Natalie and I went away for my birthday. In Palm Springs, she kept asking to go to the pool. All I wanted was a blowjob. I burrowed inside myself as I spoke. I wasn't feeling well. I had a migraine. My eyes were blurry from crying all week. After the election, salt deposited on my contact lenses. Washing morning and night wouldn't get them clean. You could have just gone down on me. That's all I wanted. My body wanted to explode calm words. You mean you would have wanted me to do something I didn't want to do or couldn't do? Yes, Glenn responded. I could see Tara's disgust with a man who claimed to love me. This man walked with me and my friends during the Women's March. Two dressed in Princess Leia wigs and held signs. We are the resistance. But wasn't the march to resist men like him? On the way back to the car, Glenn never apologized for attacking. He said, Tara must think I'm a jerk. Later, I realized he used this tactic to place my sanity into question. He tried to get my therapist to side with him. I felt something was wrong with me until I watched Broad City's Abby Jacobson on Conan. She explains that her character can't orgasm after seeing a therapist. She realizes her problem started after the 2016 election. Until that moment, I didn't have compassion for my lack of desire. Even if I knew intimacy requires safety. A part of me lost interest the night I ended up in the ER. When with Glenn, my interest peaked, but with each of his put downs, I shut down. When he was still my boyfriend, I called him out via text. He responded, that's how I push people away. When I think about Glenn, I think about how patriarchal poison sneaks into our lungs through collective air we breathe. Each time my finger passes over Malabis, I realize there is nothing to hold onto. This invisible layer is sneaky. It infiltrates in my body in cells I cannot see. Unlike a loud orange comb over on a balding man, it hides 
lurking in corners, quiet, heartbreaking, decentering, doing more damage because at the most vulnerable moments, I, we let it in. Interesting that we're following that that story. That was a great story. Um, I was just thinking, um, exes are a great source of inspiration for material. <laughs> um, here's a song about an ex. <laughs> Every band has one. Here's ours. Huh? It's called Bells. I draw your eyes Oh, won't it be The line of poetry That you Like a song suddenly gets stuck in your head. I close my eyes. 
story. American-born Cabajan Barbadian parents in Boston, Massachusetts, where he was also raised. Avona Voices and Lambda Literary alumnus, Juby lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thank God we have him here in Los Angeles, where he works as a freelance writer and nonprofit consultant. He is working on his first collection of poems, tentatively titled Original Kink, in which he aims to navigate the political and emotional landscape between rage and joy. Here's Juby. didn't feel as terrifying from down there. <laughs> I have a new appreciation for my fellow fellows who I love. My first poem of three this evening is a persona poem. And this seems like a very literary crowd. But in case there's somebody who doesn't know what a persona poem is, it's a poem that's essentially a monologue written in a character, which in this case is my father. And the title of this poem is, What My Father Left Me. Never let a man touch you tender. Warrior pose is wet lips between thighs, given nursing and a noose. Live larger than miracle, sweat the small slight, gale and quake with the heart of a warmonger. Never lie. Spend dollars like they're stolen, not slave. Take no as a dare. Trust only your fists. Forge alliances in a shot glass, in a wife beater, in a pool hall. Be smarter than everyone, else stronger, else wilder. Your cock should always be bigger than your Finish whatever you begin. Break laws like bones. When you shoot, aim for the mouth on a woman and the soul of a gangster. Be kind to old folks and drunks. Never give freely 
dress like you're hungry. Treat children like chattel. My next poem is called Zero Gravity. What weightlessness it must be to presume life, to presume tomorrow, to sense the breeze at your back and presume tailwind, not pursuit. To presume no, to presume mine, to presume first, to presume beauty, to presume us, and them, to presume God looks like you. <laughs> to me, that was the hard part. I've got one more poem. Before I go on, let me thank the wonderful people at PEN America for giving me this wonderful opportunity. <laughs> Particularly the amazing team of women in the Los Angeles office. Michelle, Natalie, who you've met tonight, Stacy and Amanda, my fellow fellows who did amazing this evening. Just amazing. They deserve another hand, yes. Dave Thomas for making all of us exponentially better than we were for the first reading. Y'all are getting a treat. <laughs> um, and um, my wonderful mentor, Doug Manuel, who is just a joy, literally a joy. If you ever meet him, if you don't know him, you should meet him, he's, he's amazing. Um, and before I go on, I do wanna thank one person. He's somewhere out there, you may meet him. Um, my husband is here, came out. here somewhere. His name is Paolo um, and he's here so I can do this because he helps. So thank you. <laughs> to him, yes. You can clap for him. This last poem is called A Prayer for Grown Folks. I pray that blood keeps sewering through my veins like rats in New York, invincible. That my thickened thighs don't sprout tender shoots of varicose veins. That my limbs don't wither and shrivel. That I find the grace to meet a patrolman's gaze without 
Crenshaw in my eyes and catfish on my tongue, that on any day, take today, the sight of two black men holding hands in these soiled streets feels as familiar to me as my morning piss or school shootings. That I learn how to work in the world, to walk in the world, at dawn or on a Tuesday or before or after work or church without scanning for my silhouettes rendered in chalk and framed in caution tape. That I'll know whether it's better to die after everyone I loved or before. That I be not forgotten until after I'm gone that I'll always be blindsided by that burst of future, fuchsia, in flowers, in the hidden folds of a lover, in cotton socks peeking out from pant cuffs, and the throats of children, and the guts of a birthday cake. Thank you. I just want Juby to take over as MC. <laughs> Let's hear it for the 2018 Emerging Voices. For those emerging writers in the crowd, the 2019 Emerging Voices application will open on June 1st. And I'm just going to quickly add to Juby's list of thank yous. A big thank you to Conrad Romo, who has hosted the Emerging Voices at Tongue & Groove for several years as well as everybody tonight working for us at Hotel Cafe. And mark your calendars and join the 2018 fellows for their final reading on Friday, August 3rd at the Moss Theater. Oh no, I heard a damn it, somebody can't come. Thank you all again for coming. Um, in the back, right before the sound booth, there's a little sign up if you wanna get email alerts for events like this one and Emerging Voices updates. And now we're going to have one more song from Elephants with Guns, thank you. So this has been a short little run. We're almost over. Um, thanks so much for having us. Um, it was great to hear the authors. Give it up for them once again. I love it when um, different art forms kind of collaborate and intersect, and this has been a great night for that. Um, this last song is about taking a journey and falling asleep. I think it's appropriate. We've been on a journey of sorts. Good night, y'all.